<laughs> That's an answer to Bruce's prayer. <laughs> that I say what is true and preach what is true <laughs> and give the correct scripture reference. So Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33, we continue to follow along uh, the storyline in Mark's gospel. And we've uh, been in the Passion Week for the last several weeks, the last week of Jesus' life, and looking at the various ways in which the events that he does during that week will lead inevitably to the cross. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 to 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as, was, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And, and they discussed, as they discussed it with one another, they were saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your grace, the grace of your Holy Spirit, to illumine our minds in the understanding of what is presented before us in Mark's Gospel. We pray that our time together will rightly, properly, correctly reflect your truth, be your truth, and exalt the name of the Lord Jesus. We pray this so that we, in knowing Jesus more deeply, in knowing his truth, knowing his word, may prove to be to our generation salt and light, even as you call disciples of Jesus to be. In our Savior's name, amen. Now, our story begins the day after Jesus cleansed the temple, which was the day after Palm Sunday, the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That makes this day to be Tuesday. Jesus comes once again to the temple to teach. He's going to face a confrontation. The Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, has sent a delegation to find Jesus in the temple and to challenge him about his actions and his teachings. There is no question about their motivation in doing so. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he said that they had made it a den of robbers. Now, this was the reaction of the chief priests and scribes who heard it. Mark chapter 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. So what's going to transpire between Jesus and this delegation from the Sanhedrin is anything but friendly. They're looking for a concrete, specific way to accuse Jesus, to lodge an accusation against Jesus upon which they can try him and then condemn him to death. 
we can also see from Mark's description that this delegation isn't a small delegation. It's comprised, first of all, of chief priest. Those were men who had already served as priest, high priest, and others who had permanent priestly duties. Then the scribes, uh, those who were the legal authorities on the law and the traditions of the law in Israel. And then the elders. The elders were drawn from the wealthy aristocrats of Israel. And so you had those different components of the Sanhedrin properly representing all of the Sanhedrin, all the different factions against this body of 70 people who, who governed Israel. They're coming with one thing in mind. They're coming to indict Jesus in whatever way they possibly can. Now, this, this show of force here was really a kind of power play, a kind of intimidation. Because what they want to say to Jesus by showing up with the numbers here, and you can imagine there's at least three from each group, so there's a minimum of nine people, possibly seven from each group. They would have considered seven to be sort of the perfect number. Could have been, there could have been 21 <laughs> members of the Sanhedrin there. But anyway, it is a show of numerical force to intimidate Jesus. To basically say to Jesus, look, you may have all of the support of the people and the pilgrims to the Passover. But you don't have the support of those who really count. And we represent those who really count. Because we represent the religious leadership, the religious rulership of Israel. We are the people that need to be reckoned with. Now, this confrontation is going to have two levels. There's going to be a historical level. The issue is going to be around authority. Um, the Sanhedrin wants to use this issue at the historical level simply to trap Jesus. They're not interested in the question itself. They want to use the question as a pretext to trap Jesus. But there's the second level, the truly biblical level, the theological level, the level at which Jesus addresses this, and that's the question of legitimate authority and what we must do with the legitimate authority and ultimately how Jesus presents himself as the ultimate legitimate authority. So while we walk through what takes place here, we're going to be focused most strongly on this deeper level of significance. The main question of authority. And the main lesson is this. If we encounter the authority of God in Christ, there are only two reactions. Either submission in faith or rebellion in unbelief. There's no middle ground. And that's essentially the lesson of this passage. It's about authority. Christ is going to put the issue to them in terms of the source of authority. And then the consequences of either recognizing or rejecting that authority. Those are our three considerations this morning. The question of authority, the source of authority, and then rightly recognizing true authority. Now, first then, it's an authentic question which the which the Sanhedrin delegation actually bring to Jesus. Verses 27 and 28, the delegation asks this question. 
By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Excellent question. It's, at one level, a very legitimate question, because look at this. There's so much at stake here in terms of what Jesus has done. So it's proper to ask, by what authority do you ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, like the Messianic prophecy predicted, and allow all of the Passover pilgrims to proclaim you to be the son of David? By what authority are you doing this? Or, by what authority do you, a man, disrupt all of the temple activities so that you stop even all the legitimate worship of God, at least for a period of time? And by what authority do you as a man accuse those who are there selling animals by the permission of the religious authorities? By what authority do you accuse them of changing God's house into a den of robbers? Uh, By what authority do you, a man, walk the temple courts and, and, and teach your version and your message concerning the kingdom of God. So everything is wrapped up in that way with respect to the delegation. That is a legitimate approach to ask, by what authority are you doing this? But it's legitimate if the question is asked in honesty and integrity. But that's not the case with the delegation from the Sanhedrin. They recognize that Jesus doesn't have any credentials. That is, normal credentials. He's not credentialed by the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees don't like him. King Herod is after him. So Jesus doesn't have any human credentials giving him this authority. So in their principles, Jesus is a maverick. He's more or less doing this on his own. Who are you? Where did you get the authority to do what you're doing? Scripture, though, tells us that their whole approach to Christ is completely inauthentic with respect to the legitimacy of the question. The delegation actually kills the legitimacy of their question because of their true motivation. It shows up in a couple of ways with respect to the current things of the day. What we know about the Sanhedrin is this. They're the religious, the, the, the highest religious authority in Israel. They're in charge of a nation that is governed by its religious heritage, by its religious law. However, all throughout the ministry of Christ... Jesus had been butting up against, saying things that contradicted, acting in in ways that subverted their authority. So the animosity against Jesus is motivated by their desire to protect their privileged religious leadership over the nation. And we know from many, many sources that not only were they wanting to protect their position of religious leadership, but most of the high priests were quite affluent, quite wealthy because of their association with the temple and all of the temple treasury. But secondly, connected as well to their privileged position was this. There's the issue of political and national security. I find it interesting when people think that Jesus was never involved in anything political. Not directly. 
but the entire ministry of Christ as it went up against the religious leadership of Israel also went up against the Roman occupation. What we need to understand is that the Romans had a permanent contingency of their military force in Israel. The governor, Pontius Pilate, was in fact the chief commander over all of that military force. There was a large enough contingency of the Roman army stationed in Jerusalem itself that could put down any rebellion. All throughout Israel, there were cohorts of soldiers here and there. You, you, Jesus encountered centurions from time to time. So the Roman presence was there, pervasive and powerful. Their job was to keep the Jews in check. And they made that responsibility lie with the Sanhedrin. You, the Sanhedrin, keep your Jews in check and we'll let you keep your privileged power position. That's the way it was. Jesus threatened all of that. We, we know this because of John's gospel. John reports this very, very clearly. In John chapter 11, 47 to 48, and this is just before the Passion Week begins in John's gospel, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place, meaning their privileged place of power, and our nation. They see that Jesus is a great threat to their own religious position, power, wealth, as well as the safety of the entire nation. So in response to that question, in response to that discussion, Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up and he says this, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas was basically saying there is only one direction we can go with Jesus. This man has to die. Now, all of that makes it very clear that when they come to ask Jesus about his authority to do what he does, they're not interested in the truth. Though the question itself is of ultimate importance, the, way they are at, the, the reason why they're asking it is so that they can pin him down, so that they can have an accusation, so they can take him to trial. They want to, in some way, reject all of the credentials that Jesus has already given to demonstrate his authority for everything he said and for everything that he has done. But Mark, throughout the Gospel of Mark, has been very careful to present all of those things that has credentialed Jesus and the authority which he would take. For instance, way back in Mark chapter 2, right in front of the Pharisees, Jesus is healing a paralytic, you know, the one who was let down through the roof by his four friends. And, and the first thing that Jesus says to the man is, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees in their hearts respond, this man's blaspheming. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus' response is, well, to prove to you all that the Son of Man, which is the way he referred to himself customarily, but to prove to all of you that the Son of Man has authority upon earth to forgive sins, 
I say, and he speaks to the man, I say to you, son, rise up, take up your pallet, and go home. Demonstrating by his power to heal the man physically that he had the power to forgive the man spiritually. Now, all through the ministry, Jesus does things like that. He does the actions which only God can do, and then he makes the claims that only God could possibly make. He's established his authority again and again and again. But listen how the claims and proofs of Jesus were taken by the Jewish leaders who opposed him. Once again, John's gospel gives us great insight into this. So in John chapter 10, where the leadership is confronting Jesus about what Jesus does, about his claims to be God, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. Then Jesus responds to that, and he says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father then do not believe them. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So all throughout his ministry, Christ consistently validated the authority by what he spoke by the actions and miracles of what he did. His own good works were the proper credentials that established his authority. But here's the issue. When a person does not want to submit to a higher authority, even though they know it is the right thing to do, they will refuse to do so, no matter how much evidence you present to them that they're in the wrong. It just doesn't matter. The, the, the issue with the Jews was never an intellectual issue of cognitive understanding. The issue was always, do we want to submit to this authority? And the answer is no, they didn't. Now, that brings us then to the second part of the story here, where Jesus is going to respond to the question, by what authority do you do this? By pointing out that there's only two possible sources of authority. He does this in verses 29 to 30. So Jesus responds, he's questioned, he answers their question with his, own, with his own question. Now, some people think, oh, that was evasive. No, that was actually the proper rabbinic way of doing debates. You were, you were always entitled when you were challenged with a question to return a question upon which you then would answer their question. You could always ask them a question. You could always do exactly what Jesus did. You could always say, sure, I will answer your question on the condition that you first answer this question. Those were the terms of the debate. The rabbis understood this. The Sanhedrin should have gotten the, should have gotten the clue by all the times they had lost in all of their debates with Jesus. They should, have, they should have understood by that point, you know, we shouldn't ask him a question. Because he's going to ask us a question that we can't answer or that we don't want to answer. Unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief in the face of Jesus never makes you more intelligent. Unbelief in the face of Jesus will drive you, in fact, to utter acts of stupidity. This, on their part, 
was an utter act of stupidity. They had never even come close to besting Jesus in any discussion. Never. Their record was 100 to 0. Christ having 100, they have 0. They had never, ever been able to, in any sense, entrap Jesus in anything he ever said. They always came out the losers. But unbelief is insanity. And how do we define insanity? Doing the same thing, the same thing, again and again and again, expecting a different result. That's insanity. So here we have the Sanhedrin delegation showing their insane approach to Christ. Presenting him with a question. And he responds, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, what's important here is to see that Jesus only gives them two choices. The baptism of John, from heaven or from men? Because there are only two choices. That's the central, vital, biblical, theological issue that Christ is really elevating this discussion to. With respect to the existence of authority, it is either God-given or it's man-made. This is the ultimate truth about authority. Either the authority that rightly governs our lives on this earth is ultimately invested in heaven because it comes from God, or it is simply man-made. It's from this earth. That's what we face in this world today. When I was working through this, all I could, when I came to this point, I was gripped with the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Now, if you've, if you've ever done any Christian reading about these two things, you'll understand that the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, says very, very clearly, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. The founding fathers in their document basically said, we recognize that moral authority is ultimately derived from God. It's God who is the ultimate authority. The French Revolution, the French Revolution specifically rejected authority vested in God, specifically grounded authorities found in the reason of men. And that's why Christian historians have said the American Revolution was relatively bloodless compared to the French Revolution that was a bloodbath. What a difference it makes if you recognize that it's God who governs us or you think that it's only man and government that governs us. If God governs us, there are things I can't do to you. If governments that are man-made that don't recognize God govern us, they can do anything to you. That's the history of the human race. It's the history. We see it worked out in, in so many ways. Now, the reason why John pointed to John the Baptist, the reason why he uses his baptism to, to illustrate this point, 
is either John's baptismal call to Israel, which was a call to repent, to repent of their sins, to return to God, to return to God in faithfulness. Either it was commissioned from heaven, or John simply took this upon himself to be a moral and spiritual reformer on his own initiative, as though he had this authority somehow within himself. Those are the only two options. Now, with respect to this, Jesus is pointing to the fact that the most significant things in life are black and white, true or false, right or wrong. One of the favorite lines that people like to give today when they're up against a tough situation and asked to explain themselves is this. Well, it's complicated, right? It's a way of brushing off what you don't want to explain or deal with. It's like you have this very, very important internship, right? You got it. You're happy you got it. But then you lose it. And your mom asks you, how's that internship going? Well, mom, it's complicated. Because you don't want to face the black and white issue that you don't have it anymore. And the reason why you don't have it anymore is because you weren't competent. That's just complicated. When Jesus puts this question to the delegation, he commands them, answer me. He's intent upon pinning them down. He's forcing them to deal with the real issues. They've had three years to deal with how they understand the ministry of John the Baptist. They've had three years to deal with how they understand his own ministry. They have three years to wrestle with this question of authority and ultimate authority. Uh, He's not going to give them the opportunity to say, well, it's complicated. They've got to answer yes or no. It's a clear cut either or. It's black or white. It's the most monumental question all of us face in life. The issue of the source of authority is ultimately this. Will you submit to the authority that comes from heaven? Or will you live in rebellion against it? It's black and white. Can't say it's complicated. No middle ground. No fence to sit on. At one point, Jesus had to address some of those who were following him on this particular issue. Way back in Luke's gospel in chapter 6, so early on in the ministry of Christ, Jesus had to say to a number of people who were following him, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Basically, Jesus was saying, you can't pay lip service to my lordship. If I am Lord, then what I say and what I teach is what you are to do. It's how you are to live. It's not complicated. It's difficult but it's not complicated. It's challenging, but it's not complicated. Either we submit our will to the will of Jesus or we live in rebellion against God. Jesus could say all authority in heaven and earth has been delivered unto him. It's that simple. 
difficult to live, difficult to submit, but not complicated. Now finally, the last part of the story deals with the recognition, or in fact the non-recognition, of the authority that's ultimately in Christ. So when Jesus puts this question to the delegation, you see that they get into a conversation with each other. They wrestle with this question. It's like, my, why are they unprepared? You know, why are they unprepared? Again, uh, rejecting Jesus leads you to insane foolishness. They know that they answer according to the truth that John's baptism was from heaven. Then Jesus will say, then why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you follow the man that God sent from heaven? They know, on the other hand, if they say, well, um, no, his authority was his own. It was man-made. Jesus will say to them, then, why didn't you stop him? But they know the reason why they didn't stop John the Baptist. It's the same reason why they haven't been able to stop Jesus. They were afraid of the multitudes that were recognizing both John the Baptist and Jesus as sent from heaven. So they claim ignorance. Ignorance in the response to Christ. But you know that it wasn't ignorance. It was a refusal to acknowledge the truth. Their attitude captured by the Apostle Paul in the first part of the book of Romans when he says that although they knew God, they refused to honor God as God and their thinking became futile. Although they recognize in Jesus the authority of heaven, they refuse to submit to that authority. And their thinking becomes futile. When Jesus sees their refusal to acknowledge the truth, he declines to give them an answer. Truth is denied to those who are not truly seeking the truth. The one who is the truth does not owe the truth to those who will deny the truth that God has already revealed. That is one of the most profound things the scripture teaches. The God of all truth does not owe every man the truth. The God of all truth has revealed himself to all men of the truth of his existence, Romans chapter 1. But they have suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. And those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Jesus does not have to reveal the truth to them because they have already set their hearts against it. However, Jesus did say in his ministry, that anyone could actually really come to the proper understanding of him and his authority and his mission. In John chapter 7, verse 16 and 17, Jesus is answering his accusers on that day, and he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Saying, My teaching is heaven sent. My teaching commissioned from heaven. 
My teaching has the authority of God who sent me. And then he goes on to say this. If anyone wills to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If anyone is genuinely willing to do God's will and he looks at Jesus Christ and he reads the gospel accounts about Jesus, if he's really willing to do God's will, if that's what he's hungering for, if that's what he's thirsting for, invariably Jesus says he will come to know the truth. And of course he will become then a Christian. I conclude with this. The Christian world's been greatly indebted to C.S. Lewis because he crystallized the issues here concerning Jesus and his authority. Remember, Lewis showed that with respect to the claims of Jesus, there were only three possibilities that we could actually go with. First of all, uh, Jesus lied. He simply lied about who he was. But if Jesus lied about being God, if Jesus lied about these claims, then he's a morally bad man. Lewis said maybe he was, you know, sincerely touched in the head, a lunatic. He was crazy. Well, that would make Jesus a mentally bad man. You don't want to follow a liar. You don't want to follow a lunatic. If he's not either of those, Lewis said, then he is who he claimed to be, the living son of God. This is the final perspective on the authority of Jesus. Those who are genuinely willing to do God's will, to serve him with all their hearts, they will find, no question, they will find that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And they will come to the Father through him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, enable us, we would pray, to face the authority of Jesus the one who died to set us free, the one whose blood paid for our sin, that we would always be willing to face the authority of Jesus and say, Lord, here I am to serve you, to live for you, to know you, to love you. Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts continually. For those who don't know you, open up their hearts to see Jesus. For us who know Jesus, keep enabling us out of a deep desire to live for Jesus, to live in submission to him. We pray this in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.